Okay, Acts 12. I told Michael the whole enchilada this time. A whole chapter. Let's pray. Our Father, unless you build the house, the builders labor in vain. Uh, let, Let not the labor of preparation or of preaching or of coming or of listening or of understanding or applying be in vain. Uh, command what you will, O Lord, and grant what you command. May these labors bear divine fruit in our hearts, in our minds, in our feet, in our hands. Will you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, by your word and spirit, in Jesus Christ, for the renown of your name. Amen. Uh, please stand for the reading of the word. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what, he was, what, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and, and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Please be seated. Perhaps you remember from a few series back now, the beginning of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk cries out to God, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. Um, So basically... Habakkuk is asking, where are you in the midst of all this? Where, where is God in the midst of our trouble? We could ask that about many things. Where is God in the midst of my health crisis? Where is God in the midst of my family problems, uh, my work issues? Uh, where is God in, in what seems to be to us, which is not true, that, that this whole world is falling to bits in a way it has never fallen to bits before? Um, Where is God in our country? Where is God in the world, in in Ukraine? Where is God in the church? Where is God in the midst of our trouble? What is God up to? We have this interesting juxtaposition here with this story and the previous one, the great revival at Antioch. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people saved. But then now back at home base, back in Jerusalem, we're hammered with this grim report that James the Apostle has been murdered by Herod the king. At first glance, that might cause us to question, ask that question, where is God in the midst? We read in verse 1, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Um, this is Luke. This is a historical account. It's sort of said matter-of-factly in one verse. But you can imagine the sense of loss. I mean, imagine if the local authorities came into our gathering and hauled a couple of us off and killed one or two of us. Like the gravity of that, and considering that this man is an apostle, this is a serious issue. We don't know exactly why Herod killed James. This is Herod Antipas, uh, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who murdered the babies. Uh, Herod Antipas is the one who murdered John the Baptist. Uh, so for, for Herod, Herod 
Antipas was everything was about personal and political gain. He was known um, it, throughout the kingdom for extravagant gifts, and he was a wealthy man, but he would give gifts even beyond his means in order to garner support from the people. And likely he was threatened in some sense by Christianity, by the morality of it, or by uh, just the growing nature of it and the potential uh, political potential there. Um, so anyway, he kills James, and he sees that that pleases the Jews, and that gives him a gleam in his eye. Ah, so he arrests Peter. He arrests Peter with the intention, it seems, to put him to death publicly before the Jews to, again, garner support from those who are in his kingdom. So in verse 3, the end of verse 3, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, presumably, I think, for public execution. Uh, for me, remnants of memories remain from childhood picture books about this story. It's a familiar story. We've read it many times. But again, imagine the sense of loss, the sense of bewilderment. That without the benefit of, you know, having read it, without the benefit of hindsight, but in the moment, James, the brother of John, a leader, John's, John's brother, son of Zebedee, Brother James, you know, we know him, murdered by Herod. And now Peter, we don't know he's going to escape. Peter, the rock, the, 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 the leading apostle, has been arrested by the same murderer. Again, where is God in the midst? We thought God was building something here. Where is he? What happened to lo, I am with you always to the end of the age? We have those questions sometimes, don't we? <laughs> uh, maybe not out loud. Maybe sometimes we do. Not maybe at the core of our being. There's still that abiding seed of faith. But experientially, it feels as though sometimes God has turned a cold shoulder. Well, why does God not X, Y, or Z? Or why does God A, B, C, and D on top of it all? So the first point here is that there are apparent losses in the Christian life. There are painful things and there are apparent losses. It's as though sometimes it feels like in the great cosmic spiritual war, Christ has taken a bit of a hit. He's taking a bit of a retreat. We know he's going to win in the end, but this, this one is a retreat. That's how it feels sometimes, an apparent loss. But we actually see in this story... Uh, that, that King Jesus takes no losses, ever. Zero losses. Not even a small step back. His purposes are, are an unstoppable freight train. So that's point number one, that there's apparent losses. The second point is that, exactly that, that there are actually no losses for King Jesus. King Jesus takes no losses. And we see this in three ways. First, that he has, he, he demonstrates his supreme authority. Um, by rescuing Peter, Jesus puts on a display of supreme authority. He, he's in absolute control over the situation. As scary as it might feel for, for the people in Jerusalem at the time. And we see that first in Peter's rescue. Um, 
like, like a child who's hidden his candy. Herod's kind of tucked away his political prize as safe as, as he could, locked away in prison, bound in chains between two guards, chained to the guards, with guards outside the door, with an iron gate. He says four squads of soldiers, likely uh, four teams of four taking three-hour shifts so that none of them fall asleep. And Luke wants us really, I think, here to understand how impossible the situation was. Peter is not escaping Humanly speaking, it seems Peter maybe even didn't really expect to be rescued. <laughs> he, he knew what happened to James and he, he thought this whole event was a vision at first. And even similarly, down in verse 15, the people fervently praying for him couldn't believe he escaped. So what happens here? I mean, God could have transported Peter from jail to anywhere, like he did with Philip, from Azotus to Caesarea. Right? He, he could have done that. But I, I love the way this story unfolds. This angel appears. He appears in shining light, and the guards don't seem to notice. And I love this. If you were awoken by an angel, like how would you expect that experience to go? Like a glorious song, maybe soothing song, gently. It's, it's, it's hilarious here. He says it's, he struck him on the side. He said... Get up. Get your clothes on. It's time to get out of here. So Peter's chains fall to the floor. He gets his clothes on. And God must have caused these guards to have fallen asleep or something like that. And as they're going out from through the iron gate that leads from the jail into the city, the, the iron gate, even of its own accord, just swings open for them. This locked iron gate. Kind of like at Rob's house, right? The automatic gates, where you have to press a button. So notice here, every security measure which Herod, it would make Herod sleep like a baby, knowing that his, he, he could dream wicked little dreams and, and know that his prize is secure. Each one of these systems is systematically dismantled with ease by King Jesus, by his angel. The guards, the chains, second set of guards, the iron gate. And, and Peter, he gets outside and the angel leaves and he's standing alone in the street. And that's when it hits him. This is for real. Uh, he had no idea up until that point. Now, is it true that Jesus is threatened or, or thwarted by the devil or by his minions like Herod? Does it make him nervous? Now, of course, he confounds their plans with ease. And I would add, he confounds their plans with some style. He takes no losses. He has absolute supreme control in this situation. But that leads us to ask, what about James? Why didn't he do the same thing for James? Or what about Stephen? Or, or what about abortion or rampant heresy in, in compromise in the American church? Or family strife or my own sin? I mean, those feel like losses to us. And yet we see that Jesus is in absolute control. And I think this is the, the second way that we see Jesus' supreme authority on display is that Peter's release frames James's death in proper perspective. I mean, was Jesus kind of like with James, oh, shucks, he got me this time, Herod got me this time, but next time I'll be ready. 
Here's the thing that feels paradoxical to us. James' death was not a loss. It was a win. James' death was not a loss. It was a win. Jesus had already told him directly, you will drink the cup that I drink. James was the first of the apostles to receive the white robe of martyrdom, to enjoy the honor of being counted worthy to die for the name of Christ. This is a victory. Of course Jesus could have done the same thing that he did with Peter, but he doesn't. Tertullian famously said, and we've heard it before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, Killing Christians is the most effective way to spread Christianity. Martyrdom strengthens resolve. It doesn't have to be with Christianity anytime. Martyrdom strengthens resolve and it enshrines the voice of the martyr. So James' death was not a step backward. The violent hand of Herod against the church was, was not a step back. It was actually a step, even a leap forward. We could say the death of James was more of a leap forward in the kingdom than Peter's rescue. The same can be said for our own trials, for the evil in our own land, for those bewildering events where, where there's no possible way to us that this could have any purpose. It's all part of God's plan. No losses, not, not a single loss for King Jesus. Not, not the slightest retreat. He, he takes no losses. He's in absolute supreme command of every moment in time. And God loves to work this way, to turn kind of the best efforts of the enemy into their own undoing. He loves that kind of irony, to, to utterly embarrass them. Which leads us to uh, the second display of Christ's supreme authority. You notice how this story is constructed. Um, Luke is a, a master uh, author and literary master. Um, notice the humor in this story. First, Peter, on the cusp of, of certain death, public death, is sleeping between the guards in prison. He's awakened again by an angel, not with a soothing song, but by a kick in the ribs. And Peter, bleary-eyed, obeys the command to get his clothes on. And he's certain he's dreaming, and he doesn't really realize until he's standing in the street by himself that he wasn't dreaming. So he goes to the house of his friends, who are on their knees praying for him. And when he knocks on the door, Rhoda, the girl's... (laughs) So excited, she leaves. And she said, Peter's here. She leaves him standing there. And while they're arguing about whether it's, whether Rhoda's crazy or whether it's Peter's angel, Peter's standing there knocking on the door, wanting to get in. And then in verses 18 and 19, I like the way Daryl Box said it. He said, the drama turns to a scene that has the modern feel of, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Back at the ranch, the guards are in a bumbling panic about what might have happened to Peter. And Herod is, of course, outraged that his prize has escaped. So, in one sense, can't you picture this whole story in that, in that sped up black and white 1930s sort of slapstick film style with yakety sax playing in the background? That's how I picture this. This is a funny passage. And I don't think that the humor of this passage is by accident, I think it's intentional. 
Comedy is a powerful literary tool. And both Luke and the Holy Spirit are, are literary masters. Um, we all enjoy the Babylon Bee. If you don't know Christian satire, um, not only because it's funny, but because humor has a way to uh, cut to the point and expose things in a way that almost no other genre can do. A few examples of some uh, some headlines. Florida school kid, sad he has to wait until fourth grade to be indoctrinated by trans ideology. <laughs> it cuts, doesn't it? That's funny. This one's doctor botches abortion, child tragically born. Not as funny. That's just cutting. Uh, Putin delays invasion again as he has a dentist appointment today, and he's already rescheduled twice. <laughs> it makes Putin out to be a bumbling idiot. That's why I titled this message, A Comedy in Open Shame. This whole humorous story really makes a mockery of Satan's best efforts to thwart the, the cause of Christ. It turns, here Herod is turned into this sort of Colonel Clink figure. This bumbling idiot, a, an utter fool. And this is what God says he does to his enemies. In, in Colossians 2.15 it says that Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He shames them. He makes them into fools. He mocks them. This is an embarrassment. Herod's best. His fun and games are thwarted. And, and to be honest, thwarted by a group of people who really don't seem to have it all that much together themselves. Because King Jesus is behind the scenes, working to utterly dismantle this sort of cute strategy of, of this man. It's like he's playing a game of chess against a child. The comedic tarring and feathering of Herod's reputation uh, comes to a climax in verses 20 through 23. This is the third way that Jesus displays his absolute authority in that all of Jesus' enemies will end in utter destruction. My friend Ted, I worked with Ted, uh, he always had lines. He always had great lines. He, one of his lines, I texted him this week because I couldn't remember a word in it. And I texted, what's that line you used to say? You probably still say. It was, I'm a legend in my own mind. He said, yes, I still say it. And yes, I still am. I told him he was going in the sermon. He said, the legend continues. <laughs> I'm a legend in my own mind. I think that's a great line. And that's just the worst. When, when you're never more embarrassed on behalf of another person when they think they're God's greatest gift to humanity and they're not. I mean, poor Herod with, with all of his pomp and circumstance. Uh, to, to understand a little bit of the background here, Kit Craig Keener says the Hellenistic cities of Tyre and Sidon were dependent on Agrippa's uh, territories for vital food supplies he had been withholding trade from them uh, and perhaps as a re- result of the famine predicted by Agabus perhaps this is even a worse situation so um, Herod's withholding food supplies from Tyre and Sidon so they need him 
And so these people are gathered together, according to Josephus, the, the historian, um, in the theater of Caesarea, and not because all these people adore Herod, but because they need him. They need food. And yet, Herod takes the opportunity to shine, literally. He, he actually wore a robe of silver, Josephus says, and timed his speech with the rising of the sun so that the rising sun would shine off of his silver robe. Uh, Josephus here, he says, He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a fabric truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illumined by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out in a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they were, and they added, Be merciful to us, for although we have to this point reverenced you only as a man, yet we shall henceforth see you as a superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So you see what's going on here. They don't love Herod. They need Herod. They're flattering Herod. And Herod fails to correct them. Herod is a legend in his own mind, robed in silver. We see time and time again, God humbles the proud in Scripture. God humbles prideful kings in particular. Think of Pharaoh, a mighty Pharaoh, reduced to a weeping puddle. His gods systematically dismantled. His slave labor force gone. And his army drowned in the Red Sea. Or Nebuchadnezzar, is it not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It says, well, the words were still in the king's mouth. You will eat grass. God humbles the proud. He humbles prideful kings. Psalm 2, why did the nations rage? Why did the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see those themes, the kingship of Jesus, God laughing at the the ploys of man. To pick a fight with God's people is to pick a fight with the king of Zion. God laughs in the face of such opposition. He made a mockery of this man who is a legend in his own mind. And isn't it sweet justice that at the beginning of the story, James is murdered by Herod. And now the story ends with this horrific, excruciating death of Herod. This ignoble, painful death for an ignoble man who caused the pain for so many others so that he could attend to this cultivation of this legend in his mind. Uh, Josephus says that it's a little bit confusing in the story. Like, did he fall down and was he consumed by worms immediately? But um, he, 
he fell down ill, and actually it says that he saw an owl, which was some sort of omen to him. But um, apparently the, the angel of the Lord visited him with the sickness. He fell sick, and he was sick with, with a stomach ailment, a painful stomach ailment, for five days before he died. Um, and Craig Keener says again about um, the history and during this time that they considered deaths, deaths from bowel diseases and worms were thought among the most horrible. So this is the fate of Herod. Uh, to molest Christ's betrothed is to incur his wrath. He, he'll make a mer- merciless mockery of all who do, and they will reap their re- reward. Their, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now finally, here in a, a delightful stroke of irony, which Luke masterfully highlights, um, all that this wicked man has done to limit the progress of the Christian movement has been flipped on its head. Only to serve the cause of Christ. And so the third and final point here, the first one was that there's apparent loss. The second is that Jesus takes no losses. And the third here we see the unstoppable march of Christ's word. The unstoppable march of Christ's word. Uh, You've heard me use the line before, increase your odds of success by lowering your standards. Uh, in this case, I think the opposite is true. Increase your odds of success by raising your standards. In those moments in the Christian life when James is dead and Peter is in prison, and we begin to wonder, where is God in the midst? Our frustration with God stems from low expectations about God's grand design. Because as sinners, we naturally think His grand design is about us. Isn't that what Habakkuk found out after he complained in Habakkuk 1.5? Look among the nations, God says, and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, as New Testament Christians, graciously, we know a lot more about God's design than Habakkuk did. Luke actually sums it up very neatly here in verse 24. But James died. The church has been stressed. Peter had to leave town. Herod did his very best to squash Christianity. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's the end game. That's the great purpose of God. That the word of God may increase and multiply. That, that unstoppable freight train will keep chugging down the track, fueled by simple prayers of the saints, even sometimes bumbling and confused saints. The gospel message will press on. God willing, it will increase and multiply. It will increase and multiply in our own hearts to overflow into the world around us. And our own hearts are naturally enrobed in silver, like Herod. We're sitting upon our own little throne, proclaiming fanciful opinions and orations of, of self-deluded grandeur. I'll speak for myself. I'm doing that. We are, we are indeed, we're, we're legends in our own minds. 
But by, by pure grace, he's chosen to redeem idolatrous hearts by his blood. So that rather than the open shame that Herod received and that we deserve, we've been made members of Christ's precious blood, which we see he so tenaciously defends with tenacity here. His bride will be defended. And we get to be a part of it by mere grace. We deserve to be right along with Herod. That, that's unstoppable. That's the unstoppable word of grace in Christ. So, where is God in the midst? Where is God in the midst of, of James dying and Peter in prison? Well, we see in the story, he's busy about his task of increasing and multiplying his word. And with that knowledge, we, we can land where Habakkuk lands um, after much consternation and much back and forth with God when he says that though the, though the fig tree should not blossom nor the fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes me at my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Amen.